So much is about to change that we need to stop and take stock of life on the streets of Philadelphia in the early 1800s. It's crowded and full of lots of different people trying to make a living. The streets offer opportunities, but are also places of great danger in an unequal society. In this densely settled city, the streets are conduits for communication. How better to make your point with your fellow residents than to parade right through their neighborhood? The streets overflow with celebrations that highlight the powerful, but they also provide space for those without power to have their say. It's rowdy and boozy and sometimes frightening. Some parts of this past will stay with us, but a lot of it won't last. So let's stop and look around before the upheaval of the 19th century. This is Found in Philadelphia, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories of Philadelphia's past so that we can better understand the present. Because our history matters. I'm your host, Lori Almond. With each episode, I hope that you'll learn something new, see things a little differently, and be inspired to go discover some of this history for yourself, right here in the city of brotherly love. This is the fourth episode in a series about the history of Philadelphia from the streets. So much is going on in the early part of the 19th century. This episode will set the stage for understanding all of the big changes that are about to happen in the coming episodes. But before we dig into the 1800s, I wanted to tell you about an upcoming event where we can explore some of Philly's history together in person. The Found in Philadelphia podcast and Beyond the Bell Tours will be co-hosting a walking tour together. It'll be on July 21st at 6.30 p.m. and we'll meet up near Independence Hall. You can get your tickets at beyondthebelltours.com. Just click on the Book Yours Today link and then navigate to July 21st. There you'll find a link to our Found in Philadelphia Badass Women's History Tour. I'll drop a link in the show notes. And if you're interested in future tours, please let me know. You can contact me through the About page on the Found in Philadelphia website. In the last episode, we covered how the streets of Philadelphia witnessed a number of dramatic events since the reading of the Declaration of Independence in 1776. War, occupation, political turmoil, and plague. We'll take up the story of Philadelphia's streets in the early 1800s. We'll see what the streets were like, how slavery still impacted the city, and experience the rowdiness of Philly's street celebrations. So what did Philadelphia look like in the early decades of the 1800s? Philadelphia in these years was still densely populated. The city had fully recovered from the slow growth of the Revolutionary War years, and about 68,000 people were living in the densely settled blocks close by the Delaware River and its ever-growing docks. Settlement was pushing north beyond Vine Street and extending below South Street, but always staying close to the river. City development petered out around 10th Street. It was still really important to live near the river. And the shipyards along the Delaware became even more important because of their support of the United States Navy during the War of 1812. Part of the reason that housing was so slow to grow past 10th Street in this period is because it took so long to build streets, sidewalks, and water infrastructure. It was much easier to build a house on the edge of town 
than it was to get the streets and sidewalks paved and water pipes connected. So people continued to crowd into the back alleys and courts within the city blocks along the Delaware. According to historians, the average city dwelling was 1,600 square feet in size, and most importantly, housed seven people. And while the housing size wasn't necessarily unusual for this time period, the number of people living in that house was much higher in the city than it was in the country. And Philadelphia, as one of the largest cities in North America, attracted a wide variety of people. The city streets would have been a diverse place where many languages were spoken. A quarter of residents came from Germany, often with only agricultural skills, so many worked as laborers. German-speaking communities clustered in the northeastern part of the city. People of Scotch and Scotch-Irish descent made up another quarter of residents in 1800. They tended to live on the southern end of the city or nearby the docks. In contrast to the Germans, the Scotch were more solidly middle-class, working as merchants and doctors. About 9% of the city were Irish immigrants, most of them desperately poor refugees who lived in cheaper housing near the outskirts of the city to both the north and south. Though they were among the poorest in the city, they were also enterprising, running small shops and groceries and volunteering to join the militias to fight the British during the War of 1812. And this is important. The majority of the Irish immigrants from this period were Protestant, which meant that they were much more accepted than the Irish Catholics who would come later. The city also had a significant and growing free Black population, which was also about 9% of the city's population in 1800. Slavery was almost completely gone from Philadelphia streets, with only 55 enslaved people documented in 1800. The Black community lived in close-knit neighborhoods, especially in the blocks to the southwest of Independence Hall, at what was then the edge of city development. Many of the Black residents in these neighborhoods had likely escaped slavery, as many of them refused to give their names to census officials in 1800. With more paved streets and cleaner sources of water, Philadelphia was beginning to be a healthier city with robust birth rates for wealthier white residents. But Philly's poor and black populations still had high death rates, especially among infants and children. These groups still lived in the crowded and less healthy back streets of the city where trash collection and street cleaning rarely happened. To give us a sense of the streets in this early period, here's Michael Kahn, urban studies professor at Stanford University. So the streets were used for many purposes. And I think that's one of the important things for us to grasp, that it may be hard to think of now when we look out in the street today. You could still see, I guess, a lot of things happening, but so many of our streets have been given over to traffic. That would not have been true in the 19th century in probably just about any part of Philadelphia. So walking around Philly's crowded streets must have been an intense experience. So much of working-class life was happening out in the street. Lower-income people, for one thing, have less access to indoor space. They tend to live in smaller dwellings, and there's less space for them to carry on their lives indoors. So poor people have to go outside to get water. They have to go outside to use the bathroom in many cases. And they have to go outside if they want any 
you know, privacy or chance to be apart from their, you know, immediate uh, household residence. And so I would say you, you would tend to see this kind of public life being more common in a lower income neighborhood. But I will say that the wealthy have their own kind of public life as well and their own uses of the streets. And in the early Republic period, for example, there was a tradition of the promenade, which was this very ritualized upper class walking in public space where you would, you know, there was a kind of acknowledged time of day and place where people would come out to see and be seen and they would kind of say these very courteous uh, kind of ritualized greetings to each other and observe what each other were wearing and so forth and it was this very high society form of of use of public space that in many ways echoes some of the some of the more working class uses of the street so there definitely are differences in the ways people use public space but the public space of the street is important for almost anybody in a place like Philadelphia throughout the 19th century. So the streets of Philadelphia in the 1800s overflowed with working class life, but the streets were an incredibly important public space for people of all classes. It was a primary place of exchange, but not just social exchange. There was a huge amount of business happening there too. A children's book from 1810 provides us a guide to the many street sellers to be found in Philadelphia. The book's tone is pretty condescending, but the descriptions and illustrations paint a picture of Philly streets as loud and lively places where the poorest residents worked hard to make a living. The book describes young women and girls, both black and white, selling strawberries, cherries, and peaches, sometimes from baskets they carried on their heads. Men with wheelbarrows selling citrus fruit and pineapples from the West Indies, or oysters and clams from the Delaware, or as far away as New York, ready to be slit open and eaten raw in the street. Carts with musk and watermelons from New Jersey. A black woman has set up her huge soup pot on the street to sell smoking hot pepper pot stew, an African dish brought to Philly by way of the Caribbean. Young black girls offering baked pears or hot corn, boiled in its husk. Young boys selling rusk cakes, a crunchy, twice-baked cake, kind of like a biscotti, a horse-drawn bread wagon, and another for milk. A knife grinder with a portable, foot-driven grinding wheel that could be picked up and moved like a wheelbarrow. A man carrying a long board of plaster-cast images on his head, which seems ill-advised. There were also the most pitied poor laborers. A poor white match girl, clearly shown barefoot and in torn skirts, and a black chimney sweep with his assistants, two very young boys covered in soot. The children's book is trying to teach the virtue of being industrious, but it exposes the dark inequality on Philly streets, especially for these young black chimney sweeps. Philadelphia offered both opportunity and risk for the black community, who increasingly found refuge in the city through the 1820s. Philadelphia, as the largest city in Pennsylvania, occupied a unique space in the early Republic, both legally and geographically. Pennsylvania was the first state to abolish slavery through gradual emancipation. And Philadelphia was the closest free city to the South, 
It offered relative freedom to enslaved people and a well-established free black community. But in very close proximity, the economies of Delaware and Maryland continued to be fueled by slave labor. This proximity would make life even more difficult for black Philadelphians after 1808, when both the U.S. and Great Britain banned the transatlantic trade and kidnapped and enslaved Africans. But whites in the South continued to trade enslaved people who were born on American soil, and black residents of Philadelphia could get swept up into the ongoing domestic slave trade. A series of highly publicized events in the 1820s reveals how precarious Philadelphia's streets could be for its black population. As early as 1799, black abolitionists in Philadelphia, led by the Reverend Absalom Jones, warned the U.S. government that free black people were being kidnapped on Philadelphia's streets and sold into slavery in the South. Pennsylvania retaliated with some stiff kidnapping laws, which imposed a penalty of 21 years in prison if found guilty. But after the transatlantic slave trade was banned, kidnappers found that the domestic slave trade was just too lucrative. It was worth their while to risk arrest. And their primary targets were poor Black boys. Many of the Black migrants coming to Philadelphia were often desperately poor. In most cases, the whole family had to work, including young children. These children had to live separately from their families, staying in their employers' houses as servants or apprentices. This would have included the sooty chimney sweeps from the children's book. Young Black kids without steady work were out on the streets trying to earn some money, like unloading cargo on the docks or running errands or helping to load and unload wagons. Some of them were on their own, runaways from slavery themselves. And these children were easy prey for the kidnappers. In 1825, nearly 20 Black children were reported missing in Philadelphia. Most of them were boys between the ages of 8 and 15. And because of the bravery of these boys, we have a record of what happened. The boys were victims of a gang that worked across state lines. A Black sailor was part of the mostly white gang, and he was key. The boys would be more likely to trust a Black person, so he was the one who would lure the children away. One boy thought he was being offered work. Another boy followed the sailor down a back alley. Once they were away from the main streets, the boys were overpowered and then forced down steps into a basement and bound with irons. When they'd kidnapped enough children, they were then placed on small ships and sailed to Maryland and Delaware. From there, the boys were made to walk barefoot across country, treated brutally and sometimes killed. The kidnappers sold the children into slavery along the way, all the way to Mississippi. Here's where the story takes a strange and truly only in America twist. One of the kidnapped boys named Samuel Scomp spoke up and found a surprisingly sympathetic listener in a white Mississippi planter who was looking to purchase him as a slave. The Mississippi planter then reached out to the mayor of Philadelphia writing that he had a group of children who claimed to be free and from Philly. Scomp had impressed the planter with his story, which the planter retold in his letter, which is how we know about it today. Scomp eventually made it back home to Philadelphia, but he was one of the lucky few. In all the years that this was going on, only 10 kidnapped children were ever successfully returned to Philadelphia. It's unknown how many more free children were enslaved this way, 
and none of the white kidnappers were ever charged. But fears of their children being kidnapped on the street led the Black community to form vigilance committees to protect the most vulnerable. These organizations were the beginning of the network that would later become the Underground Railroad in Philadelphia. In the absence of any real protection from the state, the Black community pulled together to defend itself. So we've looked at Philadelphia in the early decades of the 1800s. It was a densely settled, diverse city where the streets were intensely social places and many informal businesses thrived there. But it was also a city very near to the Southern slave states, which could no longer rely on kidnapped and enslaved people from Africa to fuel their economy. And this made for very unsafe streets for Philly's black population. But Philadelphia continued to provide opportunity and community for lots of different people. So let's look at how the city was growing and how this played out on the street. As the city grew in the early 1800s, the countryside was harder and harder to get to for ordinary citizens. In 1800, you could walk to fairly open country from the city. The forests were long gone, but the open country provided pasture for animals, places for gaming and sports, like horse racing and boxing, as well as land for foraging when times were hard for the poor. But as the city and its surrounding areas grew, open country was no longer a walk away. From 1800 to 1830, Philadelphia's urban population increased from around 68,000 in 1800 to over 168,000 by 1830. During the 1820s, the Black population of the city would grow even faster than the white population, tripling, at least according to official records. The unofficial numbers of those escaping to the city from slavery may have been higher. And by 1830, city development had finally reached Broad Street. As the countryside disappeared, Philadelphia began to show a bit more interest in the open squares that were set aside in the 1683 plan for the city. In 1800, these squares were unclaimed land, used as waste dumps for trash and dead animals. They served as unofficial cemeteries for marginal members of society. These included British war dead, prisoners, the poor, and members of the Black community. Center Square, where City Hall now stands, had been treated differently. Center Square housed the elegant but inefficient waterworks pump house and its lovely gardens from 1801 to 1830. And it was also used as a militia training ground and a race course. But its most popular use was for large seasonal fairs and for public hangings, though these were stopped in the 1830s. Part of the interest in Philadelphia's original squares came from renewed civic pride in the city's history. And we have Lafayette to thank for that. In 1824, General Lafayette made a huge splash when he visited the city on his nostalgia tour of the United States. The 67-year-old Revolutionary War hero was welcomed to the city with a parade of dignitaries, war veterans, militia troops, and artisans. The streets along the carefully crafted parade route were marked by huge triumphal arches. People bought Lafayette souvenirs and crowded the streets trying to get a glimpse of him. Lafayette's visit revived interest in all things revolutionary and inspired Philadelphia to restore the tower at the old State House, which they began to call Independence Hall. And this is often cited as the first historic preservation project in the United States. Lafayette's visit also renewed interest in William Penn and the 1683 city squares, 
especially as the city prepared for the grand parades to celebrate Washington's 100th birthday anniversary in 1832. The squares were given formal new names. Northeast Square became Franklin Square. Southeast Square was, of course, Washington Square. Southwest Square was named Rittenhouse Square after a revolutionary scientist, David Rittenhouse. And Northwest Square was dubbed Logan Square, now called Logan Circle, which was named after James Logan, once secretary to William Penn, but later part of the fraudulent walking purchase, which cheated the weakened Lenape out of their land. It was the easternmost squares, Franklin and Washington, which were the first to be landscaped with trees and formal walks. These green spaces became a place to get away from the bustle and dust of the city streets under the shade of the trees, now that open country was far away. The streets of Philadelphia in the early Republic remained powerful public spaces. While newspapers were always important, events that took place in the street remained critical for communication. Both official and unofficial takeovers of the street were a type of theater that displayed a group's power but taking over the street also influenced power relations between different groups. The street was a place to have your say, but also to put other groups in their place. Philadelphia streets held two types of events. They can be roughly described as those that were respectable and those that were rowdy. But both types of street events were for the almost exclusive participation of white men. Respectable street theater was organized predominantly by wealthy white men in positions of power. The Grand Parade for Lafayette was typical of these types of displays. These grand civic spectacles established proper standards for public behavior and dress. Men of rank in society processed down the streets in orderly formation. The most important in carriages or on horseback, and the less important on foot, each one in his proper place. This was a way for those in power put that power on display. But despite being founded by Quakers, Philadelphia has always had rowdier street events, borrowing and mixing together traditions that generally turned society on its head. Philadelphia had a whole calendar of seasonal festivities. These days offered small, temporary moments of liberty, set apart from the usual days of hard labor and working to someone else's schedule. The festivities were often alcohol-fueled and disorderly. And I should say that these days were even more alcohol-fueled than usual because Americans of all ages in the early Republic drank a lot and all day long. It's estimated that the average American man drank between 16 to 18 gallons of hard liquor a year. And that means they were drinking one of those small styrofoam coffee cups full of whiskey every day. So let's take a look at this calendar of respectable events and their rowdier counterparts, which typically fell on the holidays such as July 4th, Muster Day, and at Christmas time. July 4th has always been a special day on Philly streets, but it was a day when the respectable competed with the rowdier element. The day would begin with cannons firing and church bells ringing to mark the day. There would be church sermons and speeches, followed by a parade of dignitaries who marched to a hotel to have long formal dinners. Outside, painted illuminations, flags, and bunting announced the occasion to those in the street. Militia troops paraded through the streets, often ending at Center Square. And this was where things got more raucous. Here, the militiamen would take advantage of the day off to gather in Center Square, drinking and gambling. The nights would often degenerate into street fights. 
Some in the working class tried to reform the holiday. During the economic depression following the War of 1812, Protestant evangelism and temperance were on the rise. These societies stressed the importance of family in the church over the street and the tavern. They organized huge parades on Independence Day that seemed to take over the city, trying to spread their message throughout the neighborhoods. Though temperance was a tough sell in these hard drinking days, and many wealthy Philadelphians just gave up and they'd leave town on July 4th to escape the rowdy celebrations and the violence that often followed. Part of the problem with July 4th celebration was the compulsory militia system, which the working class hated. These militia troops would be required to join the official Independence Day parades. And whenever militia troops were forced to parade, things got a bit mutinous. This was particularly true on Mustard Day, which was actually several days in May each year. Since the revolution, men between the ages of 18 and 45 were legally required to muster and drill on foot with the public militias. Each militia volunteer was required to purchase the uniform and the gun they had to bear. Plus, they were forced to miss days at work when they had to muster and drill. And if they failed to show up, they were charged stiff fines. However, things were different if you had means. You could pay for a substitute to take your place. Or you could also pay to join one of the volunteer private militia companies that actually conferred a sort of officer status. This created a two-tiered system. The compulsory public militias were mostly made up of the skilled and unskilled laborers of the working class who had to cobble together the right clothing and often couldn't afford to buy a rifle. In contrast, the private militia companies were only open to those who could afford to join by dashing uniforms and maintain and stable a riding horse. So there was a great deal of festering resentment by the working class who were forced to take time off of work, purchase things they couldn't afford, and march through the streets with their poverty on display. On muster days, crowds would flock to the parade grounds at Center Square to watch the militias. Men who couldn't volunteer, children, and the city's Black residents would all come out. And the day turned into a festival of sorts, with even more drinking than usual. Plus, there was dancing, and street sellers would come with their baskets, simmering pots, and carts and wheelbarrows. But at night, the streets of Philadelphia gave vent to working-class resentment on muster day. Mock militia troops paraded in delicious irreverence. They wore intentionally mismatched uniforms, the crazier the better, and they carried homemade musical instruments and household items like brooms and shovels in place of rifles. Their appearance made fun of the upper class's fancy militia uniforms, but also just mocked the whole militia system, while also poking fun at themselves and the working class's poor showing on muster day. Philadelphia's mock militias were incredibly popular and reported widely in the national press. They would show up in the streets whenever things felt festive. The resentment towards the militia system went on for decades, and the mock militias endured as well. But with the support of Philadelphia's labor unions, compulsory militia service was finally abolished in 1858, just a few years before the start of the Civil War. Something that's important to think about in this calendar of festivities was that work in these early decades of the 1800s revolved around water. Early industries were driven by water power. Goods moved across the region along the rivers and then were shipped out to the world from the docks on the Delaware River. Canals were being constructed to improve river navigation with the Manion Canal opening in 1818. 
And this reliance on water meant that work fluctuated by the season. Work stopped in colder months when the streams and rivers froze. And the Delaware still froze back then. And workers went without pay when things froze. But it also meant that their time was their own in these months. While life was precarious for these workers, especially during the lean winter months, they were able to be somewhat more independent with more control over their time. And all of this kicked things up a notch at Christmas time. Christmas time became a perfect storm of disorder in Philadelphia streets, especially after the 1830s. The city was full of a diverse mix of people who brought their own traditions. Folk traditions from Europe and Africa had similar elements of masking, dancing, street music, and plays, processing from house to house, and demanding food and drink. These included bell-snickle traditions from Germany, mumming from Britain, and its Afro-Caribbean reinterpretations. And these traditions all met and got mixed up together, along with the popular anti-militia parades in Philadelphia at Christmas time. Many people were free from work, but they also had to go without pay. So the mix of festivity and economic desperation filled the streets with working class men, some who were out to celebrate during their time off, others were forced to beg, and some who were determined to get drunk and create havoc. The hard edge of Christmas time despair only got worse with the economic depression that followed the War of 1812. Groups of young white men, mostly from the working class, would wear wild disguises or mock militia dress, play rough music, and parade from tavern to tavern demanding drinks. Some groups were just out for a good time by sowing a bit of disorder. They would take their rowdy behavior to the respectable streets at the center of the city, strutting down Chestnut Street, making noise, sometimes shooting guns in the air, while the upper classes were shopping and going to the theater. They were making a point of taking over the wealthier parts of town where they weren't welcome and behaving wildly in contrast with the rules of respectable society. But too often, the winter nights would turn into street brawls and lead to racial violence as they turned on the city's most vulnerable. But this working class Christmas time revelry would continue to grow and evolve and eventually transform into Philly's modern day mummer tradition. We've looked at the rhythm of street theater and seasonal work in Philadelphia during the early 1800s. We've seen how the working class were using official celebrations to mock respectable society and its unfair traditions. In a small, densely settled, walkable city, the street was where Philadelphians communicated with each other and took back power. All of this would become increasingly important during the technological and social changes that were about to happen. And we'll talk about that next time. Thank you for listening to the Found in Philadelphia podcast. If you're enjoying this series, please drop me a review and share the podcast with a friend. And please check out the podcast website to learn more, see some period images, and find a list of my sources. This podcast was researched, written, hosted, recorded, and edited by me, Lori Ament. So all mistakes are mine. Cyril Tayandi is the amazing audio engineer and head of Drexel University's Mad Dragon Recording Studios.